From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The world forever changed 20 years ago when America was attacked on 9-11. It was so surreal. It was like what you would see in one of those movies, like an Independence Day, of where uh, monuments and stuff are being destroyed, and you just don't know which way to turn or where to go. CPR's Joanne Allen was working in New York City when the airplanes hit the Twin Towers. She shares the memories that still so clearly resonate today with friend and colleague WNYC reporter Beth Furtick. I feel like events like this are too big for us to take in all at once, so we have to treat it like it's just a movie, like your brain just can't handle it. A special episode of Colorado Matters, Reflections on 9-11. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. September 11th, 2001. Chances are you remember where you were and what you were doing when America was attacked. 20 years later, the world is still a changed place. The impact of that day carries on. Today, we're going to share the story of our colleague, Joanne Allen. She offered her reflections in her podcast, Been There, Done That, with a special friend. September 11, 2001, and its aftermath was difficult for many people, including journalists. I was a news anchor at WNYC Radio in New York, and I usually do not find it easy to talk about that day. But this year, I wanted to reach out to someone, and it was my friend and former colleague, WNYC senior reporter Beth Fertig. She's got a bunch of accolades for her reporting over the years. A DuPont-Columbia University Silver Baton, National and Local Edward R. Murrow Awards, awards from the New York City Press Club, Public Radio News Directors Association, the Society of Professional Journalists, and the list goes on. It started with one plane crash, then another, and then the blast. The building is falling right now! This reporter and other bystanders were still taking in the surreal vision of two fiery holes in the Twin Towers when we were now running for our lives. As police urged the crowd to head north, many stopped at a safe... And although Fertig, which is what I usually call her, is not a boomer, she's exactly who I needed. I have, over the years, not really paid close attention to 9-11 remembrances. And I think it's because it it just wasn't something I wanted to really remember. But on this 20th anniversary, it just feels, especially now that I have a podcast, it just feels like something I do want to do. I want to delve back into what that day was like. So tell me, what was the day like for you? How did it start off? Oh, wow. So as you remember, Joanne, there was going to be a primary that day. We were having the New York 
primary. It was a mayoral election year. There were, you know, a lot of people running for mayor on the Democratic side and a couple of people on the Republican side. And I had been assigned to cover one of the Democratic candidates. And that morning I was sleeping late because I was going to be covering the primary when I got this phone call from Kevin Beasley, who was our acting news director at the time, telling me a plane hit the World Trade Center and they need me to cover it. And I was in disbelief. I'm not a morning person. I'm getting this call telling me I have to go somewhere. And I think a few weeks before, somebody tried to parachute on the Statue of Liberty. Something strange like that happened. So in my mind, when he's telling me this, I'm just thinking, it's some stupid propeller plane. You know, why are you waking me up to cover this when we have an election tonight? And I remember turning on the radio. Oh, and, I, and Kevin's last words to me were something like, I need you to find the mayor and the police commissioner. I'm sending Andrea to the World Trade Center, and I need you to find, he meant Andrea Bernstein, one of our reporters. So I'm still like not really clued into what a big deal this is, except that I, I turned on the radio, and I remember hearing our morning anchor, Mark Hyland, interviewing someone who didn't sound familiar to me, talking about watching a plane hit a building. But I'm rushing to shower because all I can think of is I've got a shower. I'm not going to be awake. And then my boyfriend calls me and he says, are you watching this? And I said, yeah, I heard. I'm going to go there. And he goes, yeah, I don't think you know what I'm talking about. Turn on CNN. And I turned on CNN. He was at work in Midtown. And I, that was my first time seeing the image of the Twin Towers with fire. And I don't remember if one or both planes had been hit at that moment, but I know that I'm seeing flame coming out of the silver tower and the blue sky and black smoke. And I think that's when it really hit me. And I was like, this is big. But I'm still in that I'm slow in the morning <laughs> to realize that my world has changed. And I actually put on a black pantsuit because I thought, I'm going to have to cover the primary election after this and go to a headquarters, you know, because of the election. It still really hadn't affected me how big this was, which is kind of how I am. <laughs> I think I'm a little slow to grasp how big something can be at first. So I took all my equipment. I was smart enough to wear really comfortable shoes. And I ran down the flights of my walk-up building on Thompson Street in Greenwich Village, which was about a mile due north of the World Trade Center, I had this amazing view from my street of the Twin Towers, like just one mile straight north. And I come outside the building, and all the people in my neighborhood are out there watching the Twin Towers burning. And at that point, definitely both of them were burning. And it was so bizarre to see this site. It, I still couldn't really fully process what I was watching. And everybody's just gaping at this, and the smoke is pouring out and I thought to myself, it looked like a Magritte painting, you know, that surrealistic painter that things look kind of, it's afternoon, but it's also evening in his paintings. And, you know, there's this bright blue sky, but there's also the smoke and the flames. And so I just took off running to the subway. And I probably caught the last local fixed train down to Brooklyn Bridge City Hall, which is where our radio station was located in the Manhattan Municipal Building, right at the edge of the city, across the river from Brooklyn. And I saw lines of people outside payphones, and all this, like, 
soot in the air, kind of like after a ticker tape parade, you know, it was like little bits of paper and stuff. And I wanted to know what was going on at the newsroom. So I went into the building, which had been evacuated. I took the elevator up and there was one or two people from the radio station there. It might've been Laura Walker, the president of the station. And the people who were there were just like, you've got to get out. It's been evacuated. We're only having a skeleton crew of the people who have to be on the air. And then I left and I went downstairs again and I ran into one of the vice presidents for the station who said, can you convince them to leave? And she was talking about Mark Hyland, the morning anchor, and Amy Eddings, who was in there too, one of our reporters who had made it back to the station with tape from the scene. And Kari Pitkin, one of our producers, was also there. And I said, no, I'm not going to ask them to leave. They're doing exactly what they should be doing. It's our responsibility to keep the city informed. And then I ran over to Police Plaza, the police headquarters, which is you know, this is the Manhattan Civic Center in Lower Manhattan, so everything's very close together. And I started going to the police headquarters, and the guys outside said, it's been evacuated. And then I went to City Hall, and that's just across the street, and people there were saying, it's being evacuated. And I asked some of the police officers, well, do you know where the mayor is? And they said, he's gone to the command center. And the command center had just been relocated about a year or two earlier to one of the buildings in the World Trade Center complex called Seven World Trade. It was the Office of Emergency Management. When it was relocated, there was a big debate about whether that was a smart decision because, as we know, the World Trade Center had been bombed in 1993. It was already a, a big target, and people were questioning the wisdom of moving emergency command operations down there. So I remember this police officer telling me, yeah, the mayor has gone down there. Be careful. There's a lot of falling glass. And I thought, I, I just have to go. I have to try to get there as close as I can. I kept running south through this crowd of people. Everybody was staring at the burning towers. And I didn't look up a lot, and I'm glad that I didn't, because people were telling me that they were watching people falling or jumping off the buildings, and I'm so glad I didn't have to see that. I was really focused on getting to where I needed to go. But I do remember looking up once and thinking the South Tower looks like it's getting shorter, like a candle that was melting. still didn't really mean anything to me. So I kept pushing south so that I could get to the World Trade Center, which was about, I don't know, two blocks west and one block south, or maybe it was one block west and two blocks south. I just remember thinking, I've got to get there. And when I got about three blocks away, this police officer, a woman police officer, at the edge of City Hall Park told me, you can't go any further. And I showed her my press credentials and I had my microphone out. And she said, you can't, it's really dangerous. I'm doing this to save your life. And it was almost on cue as soon as she said that, Joanne, that South Tower crumbled down. It just pancaked down. And I felt it in my feet before I saw it. I felt the rumbling. And as I looked up, I saw it coming down. It was this, it looked like one of those controlled demolitions, even though it wasn't, but it had that perfect pancaking, collapsing thing going on where it just all went down into dust. And then this big cloud of brown dust and smoke and debris started blowing in my direction, blowing east. And I remember turning my, my recording equipment on and narrating into the microphone what I was seeing and just letting the sound of this 
record so I could capture what it sounded like. And then, as we've established, I'm a little slow in the morning. It takes me a while to see what's happening. I realized, oh, if they're all running, then I should run too because it's probably not a good idea to keep standing here. And everybody just started running away. And cops were saying, go north, go east. And I just kept following people. But I also kept recording it because I wanted to have the sound of those first few moments after it collapsed of what was happening. And you could hear the the pandemonium and the, the honking and people just, you know, running and screaming. Very, very scary. The building is falling right now. People are running through the street. Smoke is everywhere. People are filling lower Broadway. But I also had this weird thought, Joanne, which was, oh, maybe it was a deliberate controlled demolition. Maybe they got everybody out and they were doing this to protect people so that the building wouldn't keep burning and fall in a dangerous way. I know that sounds absolutely bananas, but it was the only thing I could think of for why the building would come down. I didn't know that, you know, melted steel collapses like that. I was so frustrated because I wanted to be able to go to the radio station and bring my tape back right away so people could hear what had happened, but I couldn't because the station had been evacuated. And I was out on the street, just outside the building, but I couldn't go inside. And all of a sudden, I ran into one of our fellow reporters, Marianne McCune. She had just hitched a ride with a bike messenger from Brooklyn to Manhattan that morning so that she could help cover the attacks. And it was so good to run into somebody that I knew and that I worked with and that I cared about because... I didn't know what I was doing. And at that point, I think I just started crying. And I was telling her, don't go down there, because it was clear that that's what she was trying to do. And I said, it's too dangerous. We can't. And then we had to figure out what to do. Oh, Beth, in your recounting what happened in that first few hours of the morning there just brings back memories. Oh, yeah. For you uptown in your apartment when that happened? Were you watching it? I, or hearing it on, on the air? I was uptown and um, I was listening to another radio station and that radio station somehow started talking about the World Trade Center being hit and I thought it was a joke. I thought they were telling, yeah. you know, a joke and so I tuned to uh, WNYC and Mark was on and, and then I realized, wait, this is not a joke. But I was still hearing yeah. the, after the first plane hit. And so it was all a matter of everyone kind of thinking it was an accident, that somehow yeah. the pilot screwed up some way. But then when that second plane came back around and flew back towards the north to hit the second tower, that's when it hit everybody. Whoa. Yeah. This is crazy. What is going on? And the feeling that I had, because I was still listening to the radio, was, no, this is not happening. It can't be. And I, you know, I just kept listening. And, and then I thought, well, I'm going to call my parents, who were elderly. I was going to give them a call. Let and let know you're okay? Yeah, because I sometimes would go to the World Trade Center before I went to my afternoon shift on air. Oh, and I would pick up lunch in the concourse mm -hmm. area downstairs where you yeah, get all I the food. Yeah, I that concourse. I did too, yeah. near the PATH train. Yeah, um, yeah. And so they knew that because they had visited me in New York and I took them around the, that area, the plaza, the buildings oh. and all of that, which was one of my favorite spots 
in all of New York was at a plaza with the the ball, the earth, or whatever it was. I can't remember what it was. Had yeah, the, there was some globe type of yeah. It's, structure or statue, yeah. Yeah, right in the middle. And so I had the the wherewithal to call my parents because I knew they would worry. And shortly after that, phone service just died. I mean, but I was still kind of lollygagging, getting myself together to go downtown to see what was happening and to get to the station. And then I heard on the radio that the first tower had fallen. And that's when I went into some sort of an automatic pilot thing and got my clothes together and got myself together and went across the street to this coffee shop because they had a TV over there. And just to see what the pictures were like, the second building had come down. The subways had stopped. People were pouring out of the subways. Um, Military aircraft were flying overhead. It was so surreal. It was like what you would see in one of those movies, like an Independence Day of where Uh, monuments and stuff are being destroyed and you just don't know which way to turn or where to go. And then I couldn't get downtown because the subways weren't running and you certainly couldn't get a cab downtown. So then I just wandered around my neighborhood on the Upper West Side and I just remember feeling just like a hole was in my stomach, like an, an emptiness that I couldn't, I mean, it was a feeling that I had never had in my life before and I don't think I've had since. That day was so extremely anxiety-ridden that you just didn't know yeah. what to do. That is exactly the feeling of not knowing what to do, and especially when you're a journalist and you have to filter this for other people, process it, tell them what's happening, and it's so hard if you can't even get your own mind around it because it's so big. But I, I also was feeling like I was in a movie, Joanne, And in part of me, I think in order to do my job, I was sort of pretending I was in a movie. Like I was thinking of that movie Deep Impact where Taylion is describing, she's she's a journalist and she's reporting on this asteroid hitting the earth, you know. And all I could think was just, okay, keep your calm. You're, You're the actor in a movie. This isn't real. This is a disaster movie that you're living through. And it just seems so larger than life. But it also felt like I had entered some kind of like parallel universe, you know, where it was all the same characters and people and places, but everything is wrong. It's all like a different version of your reality. And that began to set in throughout the rest of the day. Like at first I was just trying to make sense of it all. So when I ran into Marianne McCune, she and I were like, well, what do we do? You know, we couldn't get into the radio station with our tape. There were lines at the payphones. My cell phone wasn't working because the phones went down, but for some miraculous reason, her cell phone worked. And wow, really? Studio. Yeah, I don't know how, but her phone worked. She was the first to think, like, let's just bring witnesses to the phone and get them on the air with the anchor, Mark Kylan, which was smart because I was still thinking, what am I supposed to do, you know? And we started seeing all these office workers and people crying and people covered with that white, ashy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, And people came over to the phone to talk on the air with us and describe, you know, running down the stairs, trying to exit the World Trade Center, or seeing people in their offices as they were running down the stairs who had been burned. Um, I I was looking over this because I wrote a chapter for a book called At Ground Zero about reporters' experiences, and I wanted to refresh my memory because I think I've blacked a lot of this out, Joanne, and so before talking to you, I wanted to reread what I had written the next year. And what I wrote was also largely based on listening back to the recordings 
we had like, I don't know if we did a listening session or if we were working on um, maybe the six-month anniversary, but for some reason, we allowed ourselves to listen to our work. And it was really incredible to hear how composed everyone was. And so I was able to transcribe what I heard and, and put that in my chapter of what I said on the air and what Marianne said on the air and what our witnesses said on the air. And so I'd completely forgotten how unhinged I was feeling because at one point after we got some, you know, witnesses, survivors to talk to Mark Hyland, Mark's interviewing me and he's asking me, what's going on? And I really didn't know what to say. Like, I just, I, I, what am I supposed to say? We've just heard these incredible accounts from people. And I think I just said something like, and I reread this in the book, and I know that this is what I said. I said, I'm just happy there isn't any more disaster right now. Like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> what? Live from downtown, Beth Burdick. I'm just glad there isn't any more disaster right now. <laughs> And he said, okay, thank you, Beth. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> but then, then I think we put somebody else on. And then when he came back to me, I thought, just tell him what you're seeing. And then I started to pull it together. And I started describing firefighters using yeah. the fountain outside Foley Square, outside the courthouses. There was this big fountain. And we saw firefighters washing themselves off in the fountain. And other witnesses and survivors and tons of people there. And we just, we just started describing what we saw the traffic heading away, the police pushing people away, the number of emergency vehicles. That's when I got my senses back and I was able to do my job. And I don't think I could have done it if I hadn't been with Marianne because we really needed the two of us to help each other think straight and continue reporting that morning. And we were still on on the phone with Mark in the studio with our witnesses and our own firsthand accounts when the second tower went down. Again, I felt that rumble. It was like a subway rumble, and I felt it in my feet, and I thought, oh, no, I know what this is going to be. And when I looked up, the second tower, which was closer to us because we were north, started coming down. You can hear Beth Burtick in the background. Are you saying it's yeah, gone? Yeah, it's, it's gone. gone. It's gone. Marianne, can you see it? Marianne's standing here. We can't see anything of Tower 2. All right, we, All can... we see is smoke. The smoke is moving, and there's no tower standing there anymore. We don't know how much of it's left. It's behind the Woolworth Tower. The Woolworth Tower is blocking our view. And people are running up Broadway again. Cars are coming up. Whatever was left, we just heard another big explosion. It sounded like a subway rumbling, but louder. And suddenly we looked up, and it had come down. My day ended up sitting at in a deli up on the Upper West Side until about 2.30 or 3 o'clock. I heard that the A train was running so that you could get the A train to Canal Street. So I ran over to Central Park West, got on the train, and as the train was approaching Canal Street, I started to get extremely nervous. I was literally shaking because... Because you're going into the belly of the beast. You don't know what you're going to find down there. And I knew that particular exit at Canal and I think it's Church Street or West Broadway, I can't remember which, but you come up the steps and the first thing you would see looking south are the Twin Towers. I was stealing myself to not see the towers there, you know, to have the buildings gone. And I slowly walked up the steps. And in fact, when I looked down the street, there was nothing there but smoke billowing towards Brooklyn. And the Twin Towers weren't there. My knees buckled. I had to hold on to the railing going up. 
But I still wanted to get to the station because I was the afternoon news anchor and I didn't know what was going on. And so I was trying to get over to the station and this cop was like, no, lady, you can't pass. And I, you know, I said, but I'm a, I'm a reporter. Look, you know, I'm showing my press pass. And I said, and he said, you can't pass. No, you cannot go there. And I said, listen, the morning anchor has been on all morning and I need to get there and relieve him. Like that argument was going to work. And so he said, he said, lady, there are bomb scares in that building, the municipal building. You know, there've been bomb threats all in this area. So you are not going to pass. And so I was, I just wandered up and down, was it West Broadway, Church Street? I can't remember which one it was. I think it's Church Street. So I'm just wandering, the crowd is milling about and still no cell phone service. And I just didn't know what to do with myself. Then suddenly building number seven fell. And everybody, what you experienced earlier in the morning, everybody turned and ran northward. And I know people got trampled in the the crowd. And I somehow got myself over to a building and got up against the wall and just watched people running for their lives. Because again, we didn't know exactly what had happened until someone said, the cops or someone started saying, stop running, stop running. And then finally the the crowd got under control. And then cell phone service came back. Because I remember I called my girlfriend, Amy, in New Jersey. And I said, I was telling her what was going on and stuff. And she was crying and she was saying, get on a bus and come to Jersey. I'm like, I can't get on a bus and come to Jersey. I've got to stay and report. There is no bus. (laughs) Well, there is no bus. And also, i got to stay and report this story. I can't. Well, I'm just going to like, okay, gal, see you later. And I couldn't do that. So she was crying and disappointed. And it was just a, it was so, oh, Fertig, it was just unreal. It It was like being in a movie. It was as if. I had been uh, disembodied from time to time and watching this. I just felt like it wasn't me in the middle of this, that yeah. it, was, it was a dream. I feel like events like this are too big for us to take in all at once, so we have to treat it like it's just a movie, like your brain just can't handle it. Yeah. I know I couldn't. Emotionally, I, I couldn't handle it. It was so much that I had to have that disembodied. I'm the reporter just telling you what's happening thing in order to get through the day after I stopped crying. (laughs) Really, it was tough. As police urged the crowd to head north, many stopped at a safe distance a few blocks away to watch the gigantic cloud of smoke and debris. Loretta Williams sat with a colleague from the Port Authority, whose office was in one of the towers. They had walked down 82 flights of stairs. We just shook up. What you saw with the people? Were people okay? Tell us that. No, a couple of people got burned. Their skin was coming off. They got burned. We were just trying to get out safe. That's all we was concerned about. Several witnesses, including Denny Sito, said they saw people jumping out of the buildings. As the fire was progressing, I saw people jumping off the tower, literally just jumping off the tower without any ground support whatsoever. It was not a pretty sight. aftermath 
of the buildings falling. A really, really sad time because everybody just couldn't believe when the 340-some firefighters went running into the building to save people. And there was that poor communication among the services, the municipal services, law enforcement, fire, and all of that. And they were running into a death trap. And later, I remember everybody just felt such sadness over that. Yeah. Over those heroes. It was horrible. It's horrible. And that first press conference that I went to with the mayor, when he had the police commissioner and the fire commissioner there, fire commissioner's name was Thomas Von Essen. Remember mm-hmm. him? Mm-hmm. And I thought, this man, he looked ashen. He just looked devastated at that press conference. And I was reading the transcript you sent me, and I'd completely forgotten about this, that after I left the building to go to NPR, where we had transferred all of our broadcast operations to Midtown, NPR location, I rode the elevator with Von Essen, and I chatted with him a little as we were leaving the building, and I said, I am so sorry. I can't imagine what you're going through. I mean, he just looked so... He looked like he was about to collapse. And and I said, do you know how so many of them died? And he told me that there was a command center in the trade center, like normal, normal to have a fire command center in there, and that he evacuated it to get them out. But he brought them over to West Street across the street. And when the buildings came down, or the first one came down, it blew into them. It, mm. it fell on them. Oh, my goodness. Walking back uptown and passing, like, St. Vincent's Hospital. Oh, my God, yeah. Do you remember how there were ambulances waiting and there was no one to go and rescue? There was no one to go and bring back? That the people who were in the buildings when they fell or around the buildings were just dead? There was no one yeah. to go and bring back to the hospital to get treatment. That was such a it was sad... It you didn't make it out. Yeah, that was so sad to, to see that. Yeah. And then to walk up, I think it was 8th Avenue, and to see the black bunting on the firehouses oh. of the the firefighters who ran into the building and never came back out. Those yeah. images are in my brain forever, and they are such sad remembrances that, you know, now I'm thinking about them, but maybe for the last 10 years I haven't thought about 9-11. I've tried not to also. Like, on the anniversary, I've never gone down there on the anniversary to part to cover the memorial, you know, the reading of the names and stuff. I've never yeah. wanted to go down there. I have, though, watched the tribute in light, the beam yes. that they set up. Yes. And I always thought that was such a beautiful tribute. It it was perfect. It just captured, like, the souls of all those people going up to yeah. heaven or wherever you want to believe. And I would love to watch that from different rooftops around the city and different vantage points. That's the only thing I would ever do. Um, this year, though, like you, I am thinking about it more than usual and just kind of feeling the weight of the time that's passed and also all those people, you know, to think about the firefighters and how incredibly brave they were and they were doing their job and they were willing to risk their lives for the rest of us and all those poor office workers who didn't get out in time and the people who left those voicemail messages, you know, oh, I, it's yeah. really over, overwhelming to think of the loss for so many people. 
Well, I remember the first night that they turned on those twin beams of light. We were back at the station in lower Manhattan. And you could always see the towers at night during the day, too, yeah. from the newsroom. And, yeah. and a bunch of us were waiting to go up onto the roof the first night they were going to turn those beams on. And I remember that as well. You could have heard a pin drop on that roof because everybody was just yeah. looking at the light. God, I don't know if I was there or if I was someplace else. I remember thinking it was just so beautiful the first time I saw it, so perfectly poetic. And then also, I recall something that I had spoken to you about recently, which was um, how as journalists, even, you know, even after a few days later, there was still kind of like a war zone around Manhattan. I, even oh Midtown. There were so many vehicles. Yeah. Like, it, I'd never seen these vehicles before. And to get to work, they, were, they cordoned off blocks. And so cops were stationed at each corner. And you had, yeah. to, you had to show that you had a reason to be on that block. And mine was my press pass to get to the NPR studios so that I could go which on to WNYC. Which was near the UN. Yes, which was... So that was and, and, and high security area. And also not far from Grand Central Terminal where yep. there were constant bomb threats. And across... Oh, yeah, and across, I forgot about that. And across Second Avenue was, I believe, the Israeli consulate from yes, NPR. Yeah, it was. And they were getting bomb threats, but yeah. we, we as anchors, could not leave. So people would evacuate. But you know, I was doing my Mark Highland thing, if you will, and I didn't leave. I just was on the air. Hold the fort. Yeah, holding <laughs> down the fort. But that was scary, because you know. Who knows where where the bombs were going to be anywhere in all of Manhattan? Yeah. So those are dangerous times as well, and also sad times. And then, Beth, do you remember the smell? Oh, my God. I'll never forget that smell. It was, um, it was like acrid and sour. Yeah. And it made its way all the way up the island after a few days. Uh, maybe even less than a few days. I can't remember. But it was... Uh, such a reminder, a constant reminder when you were outside, not only what, of what you were seeing, but adding the smell to it gave it an extra sadness. Oh, it was... It felt like people who weren't living near it or working near it, it's like they were in a different world. You lived uptown, but you were still part of it by being part of the newsroom and having to come down and, and be part of this. But for people who were living in Midtown or Uptown and worked in Midtown, they didn't experience it the same way. I mean, yes, it was a tragedy for the whole city, but I just mean as somebody who I lived in Greenwich Village and you couldn't escape it. south of 14th Street. Yeah. yeah I you, could not escape it. The smell was so strong. And there were all these crazy vehicles, and I mean like things with sandbags and extra gas and National Guard troops and tanks and like all kinds of things that I, I don't, I'd never seen in my life. I felt like this was a war zone. And then all these like religious missionaries and people hawking stuff to, mm. to make money off of it. I think that's when I knew New York would be okay because we are the center of commerce, right? And so mm. like within 24 or 48 hours, people were selling photos of the tragedy. Like yeah. $10 would get you 10 photos of mm. the burning towers yeah. on Canal Street. And it was just so bizarre, you know, and we were wearing masks. 
different people were wearing those like K95. Well, we know what the masks are called now. Um, but at the time, these little face masks, because we were scared of what was in the air. Right. And I didn't know how seriously to take it, but it turned out people were getting sick. We know years later, so do I wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? I actually have that little white mask that they gave me. I think it was a police station was handing them out near me. And I, I wore one of those masks for a few days. I have it in my desk. I kept it as a souvenir. Do you also remember makeshift memorials yeah. and, and also installations of where people would put up pictures of friends and loved ones? Have you seen oh, this person? All the names on the people were not accounted for. You would just go through the city and, every, and you could see pop up just an installation. One of the worst assignments was being sent to one of those hospitals where people were hoping that they would find out that a friend or family member was there recovering, you know, mm. or, or had been found. And you would go to these hospitals and interview people who were saying, I really hope my person's out there, or they were putting up signs. And they still had that hope in the first few days. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Hello, Lieutenant. Hello, Joanne. Hi. Tell us uh, what you've done to help save someone's life. Uh, we found her maybe at about 11 and it took maybe a little bit over an hour to get her out, and we successfully got her out, and we sent her on her way to Bellevue. And what kind of injuries had she sustained? Uh, probably some broken bones and some bruises. Um, she was suffering from a bit of ultra mental status because she was trapped under the rubble um, since yesterday mm-hmm. without eating or drinking anything. But I, I would say she's in pretty good shape. Um, I'm very happy for her. Was she able to tell you where she was in the buildings? I tell you, so many buildings have collapsed. It's mm-hmm. just a big pile of, of rubble. Mm-hmm. So, um, and she really didn't know. She was kind of a bit incoherent, so she couldn't give us that information. I would imagine if I were there on the scene and someone was pulled out alive that a big cheer might go up. What was the reaction when you all found her? Oh, definitely. Um, acceleration. That's what we're here for, and that's what we like to do. A big part of our job also is bringing out bodies, and it's all pretty solemn when, when we do bring out uh, body. So when we do bring out someone alive, to tell you the truth, even the dogs get very happy. Well, Lieutenant Gerard Santiago, thank you very much for your time and also for your work. Okay, take care. Thank you. And then, of course, the time that, uh, I don't know if it was a week after 9-11, but our management had gotten us all assembled around, uh, I think it was at Channel 13, we were assembled around a, a conference room table and they brought in mental health professionals for us to... Were they with the Red Cross? I can't remember who it was exactly, but they just wanted us to talk. And I remember reporters, especially you guys who were out on the streets, just breaking down and finally being able to just really, really let it out. And that that was much... Much needed, but also just so sad. I felt like we were really hard on ourselves. Everybody felt they should have done more. Well, I know I felt I should have done more. Because I, I just thought what? I should have gotten, I don't know, Beth, I just should have gotten downtown somehow. I should have just run downtown or something. I shouldn't have been sitting. Do you still feel that way? Like there's more you could have done? No, I don't. No, I don't. Yeah, now I don't. But then I just felt like I'm sitting here eating a pastrami sandwich in a deli, <laughs> waiting to get downtown. I'm just—it was—I was restless, but it was not. I there was nothing I could do. 
Not well, because we're trained that when news breaks, we're supposed to be on it. Right. And if you can't, you feel like you're some sort of failure if you couldn't get there in time. But it doesn't always work that well. Yeah. These events are too big. I'm glad that Amy Eddings got out of there in time. She was there. She was right outside the World Trade Center interviewing people and watching them all run, leaving shoes behind and stuff. When she was told, you have to leave here, she left. We all talked about, you know, when is the right time to leave when something scary happens? Well, you do have to listen to the authorities if they're telling you, leave, this is too dangerous, because you don't want to get yourself killed. You know, I want to do my job, but I also don't want to get killed. So I didn't have any regrets about not going to the Trade Center. You know, I tried to get down there, and then it came down, and I didn't go. And there was no way I was going to keep trying to go down there in that cloud of debris. I I know my limit. (laughs) Yeah. And see something that awful. And, you know, how do you approach the the people who have just experienced this firsthand? You know, I felt really timid, Joanne, approaching people who were crying on the street. I knew it was kind of my job to tell people what impact this had. But I didn't want to press people. I didn't want to go up to those firefighters who were washing their clothes off. I I think I did without my tape recorder on because I, I remember them telling me that they didn't know what happened to the rest of their company or going up to some office worker who was crying and she didn't want to talk. But then her friend said, she said, if you talk to the reporter, everybody listening will know you're alive and that you made it. Hmm. And what a strange reason to give for doing an interview. It was tough to ask people to give more of themselves and to share their stories. Yeah. What are you going to do for the anniversary this year? Are you? What are you going to do that day? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. I'm not going to go down there. I only went to the museum for the first time this year because I was interviewed for a documentary about reporters. It was really strange going in there. You know, a whole museum built to understanding 9-11 with the uh, reflecting pools that were built in the memorial. I'd, I'd seen that before, and they are really beautiful with the names inscribed on the side, but I'd never gone into the actual museum until I was brought in for this interview. And it was the end of the day, so I couldn't get a tour of the museum. I just saw what little I could see on my way to the room. But even that was super strange, seeing the the steel, you know, the wreckage that they kept for the museum, some of the beams. There was a beam that a whole bunch of the firefighters wrote on. Then there was the transmitter. I saw the broken transmitter. And it just brings back this whole rush of feelings like, oh, yeah, that was real. That did really happen. But I don't want to, I don't know, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I also feel like it's a pretty significant anniversary. You know, 20 years? Oh, my God. 20 years later, I'm still a reporter covering New York City. After that, I felt really committed to covering New York City. I felt like, I want to see this city recover. I love this city. I want, I'm want. i from here originally. It means a lot to me to see that our city is going to survive. I identified so strongly as a New Yorker after that and to covering everything in this town. But, you know... Here we are 20 years later, and the city survived, and 
now we're going through a global pandemic, and that has also been a lot to cover. It's been a really hard time. I think I'll just go outside and watch the, the tribute in light, like I always do, and think of everybody who died and all the people who helped each other that day. Just be glad that I am still here. What are you going to do? I don't know. <laughs> I had originally planned to make a trip to New York and maybe spend as long as two weeks there. But, you know, when I've gone back, I also have not gone to down around the uh, the, the towers. Um, I've not gone to... Do you to... avoid it deliberately or is it just not on your agenda? I avoid it. Me too. I avoid it because I, I just don't know how I'm going to feel. My hairdresser is like two blocks east of it. And I thought, this is so strange. Like, I come here to Nassau Street to get my hair done every few months, but I won't walk another couple of blocks to go to that museum. I just, I avoid it. I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. So I don't blame you. There's plenty of other wonderful things to do in New York that you don't have to re-engage with that. I love New York. I lived there for 24 years. And I think up until the Trade Center disaster, until 9-11, I thought I would never leave, move away from New York. But after that happened, something changed in me, and I just I felt like I, I needed to live some other places across America. And, I, and I've done that, and I'm happy. Glad you did. New York is in my heart. It's definitely there. Yeah. I don't know if I would move someplace else later, you know, I'm, I'm Gen X. I'm a little younger than yes, you. Yes, you are. <laughs> and it's, and you're a native New Yorker, so you really I have, have roots. Here. Yeah. My boyfriend has family here, you know, it's, it's important for us both to stay here, but I do love getting away. I really love getting away. <laughs> that first day, can I tell you, and also like the first few days, weeks after, did you feel like certain that something else bad was going to happen? Because I did. I felt like we were going to be, I don't know, Northern Ireland or Israel, someplace where there's going to be constant bombs on, on mass transit. You know, I, I was so afraid for those first few days. I mean, I, I felt like I was going to find Osama bin Laden in my bathtub. You know, that's how irrationally <laughs> afraid I was for yeah. those first few days. Yeah. I think the first few days I, I was still in la-la land in my mind. It was it was stark and real, but at the same time, it was surreal. And I just yeah. kept thinking, I'm going to wake up from this dream. All the reporters and journalists and firefighters and police officers, especially rescue workers and all the folks who on 9-11 really stepped up to the plate, there's no way to adequately thank them all. But... It was, it, was, uh, it was quite a day. CPR's Joanne Allen and her podcast, Been There, Done That. Joanne was joined by her friend and fellow journalist, Beth Furtick. Hear this and all of the episodes about life through the perspective of baby boomers at beentheredonethatpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our thanks to Joanne for sharing that with us. Thanks for joining us on this special edition of Colorado Matters, I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News and KRCC.